Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Are we ignorant of Satan's designs? Are we ignorant of Satan's designs? There's a throwaway line in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul is talking with a church with whom he has a very difficult pastoral relationship. Things are a mess. He brings up the topic of forgiveness and its importance. He talks about the fact that he's worked very hard himself to forgive them in the presence of Christ. And then he says, verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, these words, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. J.B. Phillips translates that verse this way. We don't want Satan to win any victory here, and we know his methods, exclamation point. It was 1974 when it first came out, nearly 30 years after the end of the Second World War. A gentleman by the name of Winterbotham wrote a book called The Ultra Secret, telling an inner secret about the Second World War, which was crucial to the Allied victory effort. It turns out that we broke the code through the Enigma machine and Bletchley Circle, and it's another story for another time. But Churchill and others actually knew what Hitler was going to do beforehand in a number of instances. And even though Winterbottom was later criticized for overclaiming in this particular book how crucial the code-breaking was for the war, all analysts agree that the war was shorter than it otherwise would have been without the ultra-secret, without the breaking of the code. It was critical. To know what your opponent is going to do in a game beforehand gives you a huge advantage. You may know about the controversy in the NFL having to do with one particular team who thought it would be a good idea to videotape the other team secretly in order to gain an advantage. It gives you an advantage. And I have good news for you this morning as we begin. Satan lacks imagination. So he has a strategy, but guess what? It actually hasn't changed. He's using the same strategy today that he was in the garden that he used with Jesus and that he's been using with the church ever since. The question is not whether he has a strategy. He does. The question is whether we're aware of it and how we respond to it. Now, with that in mind, if you'd be kind enough to turn to Genesis chapter 3, let's consider this strategy in some detail. And you're definitely going to need your text, and I hope I can get it up on the screen, which Carol Merrill is, sorry, I grew up with the prices right, which Carol Merrill is now uh, showing you there. So if you look at your text, I want to suggest as we study this narrative that it's got three parts, each increasing in subtlety. First of all, Satan's strategy involves what I want to call a disguise in God's world. Look at your text, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty, everybody see where I am, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We're at a disadvantage with all the medieval art and all these pictures of snakes. It was undoubtedly a very attractive being. The word used, crafty, in our translation means shrewd, prudent, even wise. It's used twice in the book of Proverbs for a wise person in contrast to a fool. 
This person is crafty. This person is subtle. This person is shrewd. Here's your C.S. Lewis quote, you knew it was coming. The safest road to hell indeed, he writes in the Screwtape Letters, is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. The crucial first point, brothers and sisters, is this. Satan doesn't come as a creature in red pajamas with a pitchfork in your front yard saying, Hi, I'm Satan. I'm here to tempt you. He doesn't come with a neon sign. It's entirely the opposite of that. If you read a terrible, tragic story about the breakup of a family or a company or some cataclysmic event in history, it never starts with the key character saying, you know, I really would like to blow up my family. That's not how it works. It starts with one website, one conversation, one thought at three o'clock in the morning about how your brother really did slight you when you were six years old and you really haven't gotten back at him appropriately. And instead of sticking it under the cross and moving on, you start nurturing that grudge that you have against your brother when you were six, when he didn't treat you properly. And all it takes is the beginning of the nurture of a grudge to head you down the path, ultimately, to sin and death and even hell. It starts slowly. It's like an onion. It's subtle. So you have to be aware. It will show up in the weirdest places with no expectation on your part. I remember early on in our marriage and in my ministry, I got a computer magazine of a particular title, and I have no idea, this has never happened to me any other time in my life, these ads in this computer magazine, I just wanted to buy everything that they had. I have no idea why. I had to cancel my subscription. I do not know why it affected They just said, you were deprived. I was missing out on this crucial piece of software, which was an accessory that was going to change my life and change the world. Well, you probably wouldn't have responded to that particular magazine and those ads in that particular way. That's me. That may not be you. The point is simply that if it shows up in a strange place, pay attention to it because it's not going to come with a neon sign or red pajamas or a pitchfork. It's subtle, it's shrewd, it's slow, it's gentle, and it's dangerous. Are we all together? Number two, moving from the outside in. It involves the doubt of God's word. Look at your text. He said to the woman... Did God actually say? You could preach a year on that question easily. Now I want you to notice as we start that the fall of human beings and the cataclysm of the universe started with a theological conversation. Did you happen to notice that? It's basically a Bible study. That's how subtle it was. It's just a conversation. And he opens the conversation in a cautious way with an interested and quite general question. Is it so, says Satan, that God has said, note that the question contains a fundamental distortion of what God actually said. Did you catch that? Back in chapter 2, when God was speaking and had his own lines instead of Satan's distortions thereof, the Lord God said, chapter 2, verse 16, 
You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil you shall not eat. This is turned around majestically and magisterially and subtly and shrewdly and craftily by our figure of Satan in the story with the question, look at your text, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Is that actually what God said? No. God gave them access to all trees except one tree. Satan turned it into a general prohibition about trees. And even more important than that, as numerous commentators point out, Satan puts them in the position, them being Adam and Eve as the conversation starts, that they get to defend themselves for God's sake. This is subtle. This is crucial. It's important. They are being asked to sit in adjudication in terms of how God is running the universe. And Satan is effectively saying, you know, God's not on your side. God isn't actually fundamentally good. God's afraid that you're going to get too much knowledge too soon, too fast. And Augustine is the one who points out, and this is crucial for our purposes, that as a result of this question, the fundamental problem that started it all was not, double underscore, not the act of actually eating the fruit as important as that was. There was actually something that happened prior to the eating of the fruit as a result of this question and their response to this question. Listen to what Augustine says. Brilliant stuff, this. Our first parents, he says, fell into open disobedience because they were already secretly corrupted. For the evil act had never been done had not an evil will preceded it. And what is the origin of our evil will but pride? For pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? And this is undue exaltation when the soul, listen, abandons him to whom it ought to cleave at its, as its end and becomes a kind of end to itself. This happens when it becomes its own satisfaction. Listen, the devil then would not have ensnared man in the open and manifest sin of doing what God had forbidden had not man already begun to live for himself. By craving to be more, he became less. And by aspiring to be self-sufficing, he fell away from him who truly suffices him. Do you see what he's saying? It's profound. He's saying we were created by God, for God, to live in the presence of God forever. And our whole outward trajectory was up and out to God. We are creatures. He's the creator. We live in order to glorify him and enjoy him forever, to quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And as a result of this question, instead of bending up and out to God, we started to bend in and down on ourselves. They couldn't have done what they did if they didn't self-incur first. So there was an evil act, yes, but it was preceded by an evil will, and it all started when they were put in a position to adjudicate God's universe, and they took the throne, which was God's alone, and said, we think we know better than you, God, and we're going to judge, and we think you're letting us down. We think you're restricting us unduly. We doubt what you say. And please note that four-word question. It's very good. Not did God say, but did God actually say, right? Every word and nuance in that question matters. You don't really believe that, do you? I want to remind you as we begin of the temptation narratives which you already know about, but it's worth pausing here and just thinking about it from this perspective. After Jesus begins his public ministry, 
something significant happens to him. But the beginning of his ministry is very important in terms of the way that it unfolds. It begins with his baptism by his cousin, John the Baptist, in the Jordan River. And if you remember in the Gospels, the scene, and we have this feast in the liturgical calendar every year, he comes up out of the water, there's a huge cloud, there's a voice from the cloud, the Holy Spirit descends, he comes up, the Spirit comes down, and the voice says, you remember, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then the, ne- the very next thing, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the very next thing that happens is the Holy Spirit drives him out and he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And there's three questions, and every question is this. If you really are the Son of God, what about this and that? If you really are the Son of God, what did the voice just say? You are my beloved Son. What is every question trying to do? Get him to doubt that he's God's Son. That's what the voice just said. Satan's doing the exact same thing with Jesus in the wilderness that he's doing with Adam and Eve. He's trying to get them to doubt God's word. And every time in response, if you remember, Jesus quotes scripture. By the way, as we're flying by, you may note with interest that the third thing that Jesus deals with is when Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. So can I just note for you that Satan's a theologian, just a bad one. But, but even Satan quotes and distorts scripture. So subtle is he. So first of all, a disguise in God's world. world. Second of all, a doubt of God's word. You all with me? Now, third and most important and most fundamental, a distrust of God's goodness. It's not simply that he opens a conversation and puts them in a position where they get to defend themselves for God's sake, which is just wonderful because it makes them fall and trust themselves before they act out their fundamental rebellion. He does something else. It's not just God's word and God's world that he's after. It's God's character. Satan distorts God's positive invitation to eat of every tree without exemption except for one into a negative prohibition designed to get them to distrust God's goodness. Bountiful provision is distorted around to a single prohibition from which Satan takes this approach. God is actually fundamentally prohibitive. He's not to be trusted. He does not want the best for you. In other words, God's not on your side. It is terrible to be fooled by Satan's disguise. It is awful to doubt God's word. But if you really want to dislodge somebody as a Christian, get them to doubt God's goodness. Get them to doubt that God's really on their side. Then they're sunk from the get-go. So much of the New Testament is along this line. I think of 1 John. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, 1 John 3, that we should be called children of God, he says. Why is that so important? Because so many of the early Christians were constantly struggling with the reality that they really were the children of God. Those four comfortable words in the liturgy every week, one of the ways that you can think of them is they are to lodge you in the goodness of God. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You can trust him. Why does Cranmer put those words in the liturgy every single week? Because Satan's full-time job, do you know this, is to make you feel condemned. Now I need to make a pastoral point at this point. 
It's important for us as Christians to learn the difference between conviction and condemnation. What we're talking about here is condemnation. That is to say, you have nothing as a person to offer God. And Satan's full-time job, you can look it up later in Revelation chapter 12, is to accuse you day and night. Last time I checked, that was pretty frequent. Accuse you day and night and to convince you that you have nothing to offer God. And when Paul says in, in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's talking about condemnation, and condemnation is a general sense of your worthlessness, right? Not to be confused with conviction, which is the Holy Spirit's job. Conviction is always specific. Condemnation is always general, right? Condemnation is you have nothing to offer, uh, conviction is you shouldn't have said that thing to your wife in the car, right? That's conviction, right? But, but they're very, di- and, and conviction is a good thing, right, which the Holy Spirit does, which involves a specific act or attitude or whatever. But, but, but the point is that condemnation is what's going on here. They are being asked to condemn God and not trust in God's goodness. Now, I have a lifelong love of C.S. Lewis for which I'm constantly teased, but I never tire of using him. And one of my favorite scenes on this point happens in The Magician's Nephew. And he does a great job, I think, of, of getting underneath what Satan's really doing in this question. We don't have time to go into all the details of this fantastic children's story, The Magician's Nephew. But one of the key characters is Diggory. And one of the things we learn about Diggory is that Diggory's mother is very sick and she's dying. And it's, it's the biggest source of pain in Diggory's life. And just as we're going by, it's terribly significant, period, but it's especially significant in the writings of Lewis because when Lewis was growing up in Northern Ireland, he had a profound and deep love for his mother who got sick when he was very young, and he has these memories as a young child. All, all he hears is his father and other people whispering and doesn't seem to be very good, and she ultimately died. So he's writing about a young boy who has a very sick mother who's in the process of dying. And Diggory's given a job, which is to go to the garden and actually fix the mess that Adam and Eve are creating. And he's supposed to go there and he's supposed to get one of these silver apples, and that's another story for another time. Unfortunately for Diggory, when he gets there and he's on this errand, uh, the white witch sneaks into the garden while while he's uh, on his errand that he's been sent on. And uh, just like in Genesis 3, the white witch starts a theological conversation. But what I want you to notice is I want you to notice the approach that the white witch takes with Diggory. It's so menacing, it's so beguiling, and it's so crafty. I know the errand you've come on, says the witch, for it was I who close beside you in the woods last night heard all your counsels. You've plucked the fruit in the yonder garden, you have it in your pocket now, and you are going to take it back untasted to the lion for him to eat, for him to use. You simpleton. Do you not know what that fruit is? I will tell you, it is the apple of youth. It is the apple of life. I know, for I've tasted it and feel already such changes in myself that I shall never grow old or die. Eat it, boy, eat it, and you and I will both live forever. No thanks, says Diggory. And then she really turns the knife. But what about this mother of yours whom you pretend to love so? says the witch. What's she got to do with it? 
says Diggory. Do you not see, you fool, that one bite of that apple will heal her? You have it in your pocket. We are here by ourselves and the line is far away. Use your magic and go back to your own world. A minute later, you can be at your mother's bedside, giving her the fruit. Five minutes later, you will see the color coming back to her face. She will tell you the pain is gone. Soon she will tell you she feels stronger. Then she will fall asleep. Think of that. Sleep, natural sleep, without pain, without drugs. The next day, everyone will talk about how wonderfully she's recovered. Soon she will be quite well again. All will be well again. Your home will be happy again. You will be like the other boys. What has the lion ever done for you, she says, that you would be his slave? What would your mother think, she says, if she knew that you could have taken her pain away and given her back her life and saved your father's heart from being broken and you wouldn't? Boom. What in the world is the witch trying to do? He's trying to dislodge Diggory from a fundamental trust in the character of the lion who's given him this errand. And she's digging at the deepest root of pain in his life. And essentially saying, God's not on your side. God doesn't care about your mother. You can fix your mother. The lion knows you can fix your mother. You're doing the wrong errand. You're going to take the apple to him, and you can fix everything by taking it to your mother. Because God's not on your side. Boom. All right, three points. Disguise, doubt, distrust. Two questions, then I'm done. It seems to me, if you're going to take this lesson this morning seriously, there are two things that are a challenge for all of us where we live and move and have our being in South Carolina in the 21st century in the midst of COVID, whatever that means. And don't even pretend to get me to tell you because I don't know. But it seems to me that the first challenge of this passage is a reminder of our radical vulnerability. The way I want you to think about it is this. What what is the Lord's Prayer trying to communicate to you as a Christian if you're supposed to pray it every day? Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Why do I pray that every day? Because I'm so capable of both of those things left to myself. 1 Peter 5 puts it this way. Our devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Newsflash, brothers and sisters, you're not in a neutral world. You're in enemy territory. When you're in a war, it changes you. And as a Christian, you fight against the world, the flesh, yes, and the devil every single day. And how you go into your day is crucial. And you're in a culture which says you can do it your way, you're fine, you're in charge of everything, you have all that you need, yada, yada, yada. It's absolute bunk. Left to ourselves, we're sunk. And so we pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. So it's a reminder of our radical vulnerability. If you don't see yourself in diggory, If you don't see yourself in Adam and Eve, if you don't think that back then, if I put you in the store, you'd seriously consider and probably do what they did, you need to talk to me after the service. Point number one. Point number two is even more important, and that is everything Satan is about is to dislodge you from a belief that God is on your side. I was messing around in my files this week, and I came across a passage from Elizabeth Elliot's book, 
I love Elizabeth Elliott. She lived to be 88 years old. She died in 2015, comes from an amazing family, which is another story for another time. And this is in one of her books. And one of the things that she did with her amazing family is they'd come together every year for a family reunion. They'd all tell stories. And they were all incredible Christians in various ways. And this is a story that her brother Dave told at one of her family reunions. Listen to this. A man we'll call Ivan, a prisoner in an unnamed country, was taken from his cell, interrogated, tortured, and beaten nearly to a pulp. The one comfort in his life was a blanket. As he staggered back to his cell, ready to collapse into what was his only meager comfort, he saw to his dismay that someone else was already wrapped up in it, an informer, he supposed. He fell on the filthy floor and cried out, I can't take it anymore. Whereupon a voice came from the blanket. Ivan, said the voice, what do you mean you can't take it anymore? Thinking the man was trying to get information to be used against him, Ivan didn't explain. He merely repeated what he had said. Ivan, came the voice, have you forgotten that Jesus is with you? And then the figure in the blanket was gone. Ivan was unable to walk for a minute before now. He suddenly leaped to his feet, danced around the cell, praising the Lord. In the morning, the guard who had starved and beaten him the day before asked as his first question, who had fed him overnight because he looked so good? And Ivan said, no one. Why do you look so different, said the guard? Because my Lord was with me last night, he said. Oh, is that so? Where is your Lord now? He said, Ivan opened his shirt, pointed to his heart, and said, here. Okay, said the guard, I'm going to shoot you and your Lord right now. And he pointed his pistol right into Ivan's chest. Shoot me if you wish, said Ivan. I'll go to be with my Lord. The guard returned his pistol to its holster, shaking his head in bewilderment. Later, listen to this, Ivan learned that his wife and children had been praying for him on the same night And they read Isaiah 51, verse 14, which reads this way. The cowering prisoners will soon be set free. They will not die in their dungeon, nor will they lack any bread. Ivan was released shortly thereafter and continued faithfully to preach the gospel until he died in his 80s. Elizabeth Elliot calls the story the angel in the cell. What did Ivan learn? He just needed to be, things were bad. He just needed to be reminded that God was on his side. It changed everything. You are going to be in lots of places in your life today and going forward where you're going to be tempted to think that God's not on your side. Don't buy it, brothers and sisters. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He died for you. He knows you better than you know yourself, and you can trust him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.